Welcome to Open Out. This is a podcast series about the nitty-gritty of living interculturally. My name is Bill Miller, and prior to engaging in this project, I was for 14 years pastor of what emerged as one of the most culturally diverse churches in North America. This is episode two of our commencing series, where we're focusing on the experiences of faith communities that have chosen diversity over predictability. Communities that are intentionally opening themselves outwards. If you've heard earlier episodes, you'll know that we try to keep things simple here, focus on the practical. But every so often, we need to tip our toes into the ever-swirling river of words and concepts. And that's what we're going to do today. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes warns us, the more words we use, the less sense we make. That's a risk humans find irresistible. So let's explore this often bewildering landscape of intercultural awareness and training in this episode, Decluttering Concepts. The poet Rilke, I've quoted him before in these podcasts, He seems to share some of my misgivings. He writes, I fear humans making words, words that describe everything so clearly. Here is hound, there is house. This is the beginning, that is the end. I fear the mockery of their language, defining what was and what will be. And so the mountain is no longer a miracle. Though this episode is a bit more technical, if you're trying to open yourself to diversity, you may, at some point, sign up for a webinar or or attend a training event. And intercultural training language can be a bit confusing. The pioneers in this field came from different social streams, some from business management, the corporate sector, some from medicine or social work, psychology. And that might help explain why there's so many different words for what we're trying to achieve. That, I guess, and of course, our love for words. Welcome to Module 3, Unit 1, Intercultural Competency. Cultural fluency. Creating an environment of cultural safety. Cultural humility with cultural competence. The desired objective is often said to be intercultural competence. Can you tell me, what is cross-cultural training? Cultural intelligence, or CQ. We're talking about managing cultural differences at work. Intercultural competence. Cross-cultural adaptability. What is cultural humility? How is it different than cultural competence? Ten benefits of cultural awareness training. Sometimes referred to as intercultural communication. Intercultural engagement. Global and intercultural fluency. Intercultural understanding. Intercultural skills. In cross-cultural management. What is cross-cultural leadership? So how do people develop intercultural sensitivity? Develop cultural intelligence so you can communicate confidently across cultures. There are numerous training courses, manuals, books, videos, podcasts. Well, this is one. In webinars about how we can intentionally and accurately open ourselves to others who have a different cultural background and together build a healthy mutual relationship. So what exactly are we trying to achieve? Intercultural competence? Cultural intelligence? Cultural humility? Cultural safety? Or perhaps my all-time favorite, constructive marginality, a term coined by Jane Bennett. Marginality was used by early leaders in the cross-cultural field to describe the ability to operate, or, or not, on both sides of a cultural boundary, 
a margin. And Bennett wanted to clearly differentiate constructive marginality from encapsulated marginality. You know, that's that state of lostness, of anomie. You might remember Bill Murray in the movie Lost in Translation. It's that experience of being stuck between cultures, no longer at home in either. Constructive marginality describes the place where you are able to comfortably and clearly move back and forth across a cultural boundary, able to communicate effectively in both contexts, both interpreting accurately what the other is meaning and being able to express yourself in a way that the other can actually understand what you are intending. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, both terms didn't really last. Still, constructive marginality is, in many ways, the aim of many of our current approaches. So let's look again at some of the popular current models or or concepts. As I read through the names, see what kind of images or impressions come to your mind. And, if you can, see what word or words stand out for you, strike you as most important. Cultural competence. Cultural intelligence. Cultural fluency. Intercultural sensitivity. Cross-cultural adaptability. Cultural humility. And cultural safety. What word or words stood out for you? Personally, I believe the most important was third from last. It's a three-letter word, and. This is an and list, not an or list. Competency does not replace adaptability. Cultural intelligence and cultural humility can coexist. Not only that, I think they need to. Here's a different list. Cobalt, Peacock, Navy, Royal, Sky, Teal. They're all different, right? Peacock is not the same as navy, but they're all blue, all different facets of the experience we call blue. We could argue about which is the true blue, the best blue, but that's not going to achieve much. And so with blue in mind, and with our hand clasping and, let's look briefly at some insights from these different streams or concepts. Cultural or intercultural competence grew initially out of the healthcare field in the early 1990s and and was quickly adopted by social work and psychology. There's always some variation in how these things are defined, but commonly, cultural competency is described as the ability to understand, appreciate, and interact effectively with people whose cultural background or belief system is different than yours. If you thought, hmm, Doesn't that sound a lot like constructive marginality? Yep, it does. Cultural competence emphasizes the importance of both culture itself and of respecting and understanding cross-cultural differences in order to adapt services to meet the needs of a more diverse group. To achieve this competence, they say, four elements are essential. The first is knowledge, and this includes both knowledge about cross-cultural differences as well as specific knowledge about the culture itself. Second is skills. And this is basically the application of the knowledge. The ability to communicate effectively across cultural lines is the application of knowledges about differences in communication patterns. The third is attitude. Having an attitude of intentional openness. And the fourth is awareness. And this includes both 
self-awareness, being conscious of your own responses to differences, your, your own implicit biases, as well as an awareness of the other as a person. Eric Law, quite well known in church circles as a respected elder in intercultural ministry, incorporates this language of competency into his training. Cultural intelligence, or sometimes called CQ, is a concept that emerged in the early 2000s, this time primarily out of the business management field, that, that corporate sector. It was in turn picked up by government, academics, and economics. Cultural intelligence, as they describe it, is the ability to interpret the unfamiliar words, actions, or gestures of someone from a different culture in the same way a person who shared that culture would interpret them. In other words, communication. With cultural intelligence, then, we can adapt our own behavior, actions, and gestures to fit this new, different context. Seem familiar? The core elements, they say, in achieving CQ, cultural intelligence, are sometimes described as knowledge, and here they include both thoughts or learning and skills. Mindfulness, or sometimes I'll call it metacognition, that's, that's self-awareness. Third, motivation. Fourth, behavior. Okay, well, it's not quite that simple or clear. Other writers describe these core capabilities differently, but oddly, it seems often it's four of them. Why groups of four? I wondered, so I, I turned to Google. Turns out around four things are the maximum that our brains can hold together at any one time. Apparently, they used to think we could hold seven in our brains at the same time. Maybe that's why we had phone numbers with seven digits, but nope, it's four now. And that's about three more than I can usually manage. But. Cultural intelligence, then, is a form of intelligence where skills and knowledge interconnect and so enable people to adapt, interpret, and interact across cultural lines. An essential trait, they say, is openness to experience. Unlike how they are sometimes caricatured by folk who prefer other concepts or words, cultural competence and cultural intelligence, though they, they may sound rather head-focused, they both factor in self-awareness, attitude, openness, and motivation into that mix. Milton Bennett is another pioneer in the field, and he uses the term intercultural sensitivity, which for him combines both skills and mindset. He also has a helpful scale of intercultural sensitivity, which we'll look at a bit later in this episode. Still, to me at least, these approaches feel somehow Western, or, or perhaps a bit stereotypically masculine, more focused on production than perception more on doing than receiving. Growing out of the medical and business spheres, I, I guess this makes sense. So it ought not to be too surprising then that the models put forward by women in healthcare systems have had a somewhat different feeling, a, a different energy. Cultural humility was first presented by doctors Melanie Turvalon and Jan Murray Garcia in 1998 in the Journal of Healthcare for the Poor and Underserved a title that's both kind of odd and strangely wonderful. Cultural humility focuses on the personal awareness side with an intent to encourage personal reflection in order to grow in awareness of culture. So rather than developing skills per se, they emphasize introspection and co-learning with clients. Rather than attaining set competencies, the goal is to engage in lifelong, ongoing learning. 
If you heard episode 7 last season, you might remember that Dan Burkotka, a leader of the Nepali Christian community and one of the ministry staff at Knox Winnipeg, saying that vulnerability, he thought, is the most important thing in helping our faith communities open outwards. Vulnerability, humility, they're related concepts, aren't they? Cultural safety is a concept first promoted by Irrahapati Ramsden, Maori nurse and indigenous advocate in New Zealand. And she wove together her perspective as nurse, indigenous, female, colonized. In her words, transformative change starts with self-discovery. It's a perspective that has gained currency among indigenous healthcare advocates in Canada with the goal of creating safe, respectful, and nurturing practice. Safe for all people, including those whose self-understanding and values differ from those of the majority culture. The indigenous, immigrant, racialized. To achieve this, they say, we need to engage first in an intentional process of reflection on our own culture, beliefs, and attitudes. And out of that personal reflection, we attempt to recognize and minimize power differences with the other in order to develop open, respectful conversation, a true two-way dialogue. And out of that, to develop trust. These are but a few of the key themes in intercultural literature and training. There's more out there, to be sure. Cultural fluency, hybridity, literacy. But this is enough to get us started. If you're like me, all of this can seem rather like a bewildering world of competing philosophies or and perhaps academic egos. But remembering those shades of blue and, and still clinging to that powerful three-letter word, and, we can find ourselves not pulled by the competing approaches, but blessed by remarkable commonalities and, and ways in which these different approaches complement one another. One of the insights that many of us who grew up in Western culture are learning, both from those who come from away and those who have been here much longer, is that life doesn't always need to be quite so defined, not quite so binary. So if we take all these approaches and link them with a grand and, what happens? Then we see a shared goal of open, clear, respectful communication where we can truly hear one another. We see interaction between equals, mutual understanding and mutual contribution. It's an environment where we can feel comfortable and function well, even when it is different than the environment in which we grew up. Martin Buber, the great Jewish philosopher, spoke about the I-thou relationship, that, that connection. And such a relationship is possible between folk with radically different cultural backgrounds and mindsets. If we start weaving these strands together, then what do we see? Well, first, knowledge and skill matter. We need them. Recognition of how cultural differences affect us, you know, collectivism, communication patterns, as well as some specific areas of knowledge, the, the impact of colonization, especially when we're connecting with indigenous folk, the impact of trauma and migration, especially if we're connecting with refugee populations, an understanding of how different cultures affect how we make decisions and how we interact and communicate together. It's so important. But in a sense, it might be the least important strand in this braid. 
Because you can have all the skills in the world, but if your heart is wrong, it's just not going to do you much good. You'll be, in Paul's words, a clanging bell or crashing cymbal. <laughs> crashing cymbal. You know, it's interesting. Because that could be either a crashing cymbal with a C or a crashing cymbal with an S. Either way, attitude is key. This is where humility and vulnerability come in. And as our faith communities corporately need to cultivate being exocentric, having, having their focus on something outside the community itself, being missional, as individuals in community, we need to cultivate being allocentric, having a focus on others, not ourselves. That helps us accept our discomfort as one component in helping others find a place of belonging. This isn't complicated stuff. It's love, basically. You might remember in episode three of last season, we explored moving from xenophobia, the fear of the stranger, to philoxenia, which literally means the love of the stranger, the outsider. It's the Greek word translated hospitality in the Christian scriptures. The third element, I think, is probably motivation. Having the courage to create opportunity for conversation, take initiative, engage actively. You have to want relationship in order to have relationship. You know, when I worked in congregational transformation, there was an old adage that said, churches who want to grow might grow. Churches who do not want to grow will not grow. Growth, of course, is change. It requires changing the basic script that people are living. Similarly, those who want to open may open. Those who do not will not. It holds true for individuals as well as groups. One other theme shared by all, or, or at least most of these approaches, is the idea of progression, that we move bit by bit, stage by stage. We looked at this in episode four of last season, where at the community level, we looked at different levels of welcome, from not welcome to transformational welcome. Milton Bennett has a well-known developmental framework that is particularly helpful when we think of progression at an individual level. In his model, we all move in stages from ethnocentrism, in which my culture is central, my cultural ways are normative, to what he calls ethno-relativism, in which I understand that, oh, my culture is one of many cultures, and my cultural ways are one option among many ways. In each of these, he outlines three stages. So as we move through this natural ethnocentrism, in which we see our culture as normal and normative, we move from denial of difference to defense against difference, and then to minimization of difference. Then as we move into ethno-relativism, we begin with acceptance of difference, and then adaptation to difference, and then integration of difference. We all start at the denial stage, Bennett says, so there's no reason to feel superior if we're somewhere further down the continuum at a certain point. It's a journey. We all start where we start, and we need different things at different places on that path. I confess I'm, I'm personally not fully convinced these are entirely developmental or sequential, that defense needs to follow denial and minimization must follow defense. But if we think of these as two clusters, I find that very compelling. It seems to me we can move around a bit within that cluster. 
But transformation occurs when we make that cognitive and emotional leap into ethno-relativism. If you're interested, you can find more information about the scale by Googling either Bennett scale, B-E-N-N-E-T-T, or developmental model of intercultural sensitivity. In faith circles, both Eric Law and the Forum for Intercultural Leadership and Learning used this model in their training. At the same time as this scale was being developed, I was coming toward the end of a long sojourn in the deaf community. Reflecting on my own personal experience and drawing on the literature available at that time, I developed a framework for understanding the experience of hearing people living and working in the deaf community. That framework also holds for anyone working in a cultural environment that is new or different for them. That model looked at cross-cultural experiences centering around three sequential core questions. As you enter this new culture, the first question that your mind fixes on is, who are these people? How do they think? Make decisions? What do they value? It's often a time of conflicting polarities where we move between, these people are totally different than I am, to these people are pretty much the same as me. Over time, this leads to a second question. Who am I among these people? At this point, the locus of confusion has become a bit more internal. Because in this new cultural landscape, so many of the social pillars that we relied on to tell us who we are and how to act, well, well they're gone. They're, they're different. And so we can start to behave differently. We are trying to find our place in this new cultural context. On a personal level, we're beginning to experience displacement, feeling a bit like a fish out of water, something that newcomers, racialized folk, and indigenous people often know very deeply. If we're fortunate, and we continue along this path, we may find ourselves asking simply, who am I? At this point, the locus of confusion has become fully internal. We no longer know who we are, what we believe or think or value. It's internalized culture shock. It can be a terribly painful experience. But it's also beneficial, perhaps for some of us, even essential. For it's out of that experience of psychic deconstruction or demolition that a new identity can be forged. And with that new identity comes the ability to move back and forth across the cultural boundary with comfort and clarity, intuitively knowing what to do in each context, how to listen, how to speak. This change in identity as a result of encounters with strangers is a pattern likely familiar to both Jews and Christians. It's a part of many of our central faith stories. Abram became Abraham, and Sarai, Sarah, after they had encountered three strangers. And of course, Jacob became Israel, the actual embodiment of the nation. His new identity emerges after he literally wrestles through the night with a divine stranger, after he wrestles with God. As dawn breaks, he emerges from the struggle changed, forever limping, and is given a new name, Israel, God-wrestler. In Christian writings, the fundamentalist extremist Saul, blinded by a divine light, undergoes a dramatic change in perception and becomes the Apostle Paul. Simon the Erratic became Peter the Rock. In all these stories, something significant happens on the inside, deep on the inside. It's not just a matter of rearranging bits of that prefrontal cortex, that slow reasoning part of our brain. The change extends right into the nether regions of the brain. At that point, we're not trying to act differently. We are different. It's integrated. 
Pain is part of this, of course. There is, as they say, no shortcut to resurrection. When I was working at Knox in the heart of that newcomer community, the community informally renamed me Mr. Bill. I have no idea if this is common, but if something similar has happened to you, please let me know. We might explore this in a future episode. You can reach me through the Facebook page or email me at openout.ic at gmail.com. New name or not, when we intentionally open ourselves to strangers, newcomers, first peoples, this great diversity, most of us experience being changed deeply. In the 1500s, when Copernicus put forward the idea that the Earth goes around the sun, not the reverse, well, it took a while for that idea to really catch on. But that idea fundamentally changed human societies. We discovered that we actually weren't the center of the universe, just one of many planets circling one of many stars. In conversations with members and leaders of communities that have opened, People say it's been a similar process in their faith communities, that they have been utterly changed by the realization that their cultural ways and preferences are not the center of the church universe. They're just one group among many. Their ways, just one set of ways among many. This is, of course, what Bennett calls ethno-relativism, seeing our own culture as but one pattern, one option. In my conversations with folk, leaders from these communities, it seems pretty clear that their pathway has included elements of all of the concepts we've looked at in this episode, but they're woven together in a way that fits that particular community. If we simply keep our minds a bit open, hold on to the word and, we can gain so much. I hope this exploration has been at least somewhat interesting. I know this stuff can seem a bit dry. But you know, it really does matter. It matters if we can keep ourselves open in order to not get, not get trapped somewhere, not allow our souls or psyches to become governed by some external set of expectations. Open Out podcasts this fall are being published bi-weekly. If you're enjoying them, finding them helpful, please subscribe. I'm grateful to the United Church Foundation for supporting the research behind Open Out through its McGeechee Scholarship. And I am grateful as well to the United Church Publishing House and its intercultural ministries for their support. Theme music is by Bruce Harding. Bruce is a terrific resource for global music. I hope sometime in the future to have a full episode looking at intercultural music. Until next time, then. Shalom, salam, jai mashi, mungu akubariki.